0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon So, uh, where have you been for the past three weeks? (laughs) That's a joke, in case you're wondering, because uh, seeing as how there have been Boku downloads since we were last together, I know that you've been here. It was me that was away for a bit. Seems like uh, no matter where you live, there's uh, been some kind of disruption in people's lives, uh, whether it's the cold weather in much of the U.S., or the rain and floods in the U.K. and throughout much of Europe, or the uh, political upheavals in a dozen or more places there is uh, some kind of disturbance everywhere to keep you off balance, it seems. Now, here in Southern California, in the county where I live, we've got over three million people, and among us there are quite a few different political and religious differences. However, uh, at least so far, we've been able to settle our differences without any bloodshed. And our weather is actually as good as it gets on this little planet. So, I guess that Mother Nature felt that we should have some kind of difficulties out here as well, and uh, so she let one of her new flu viruses loose on us. But I don't want you to think that I've been down with the flu. The way I see it, I've just been strengthening my immune system. And now that I'm almost back up to speed, I'm going to uh, post this podcast right now with only a minimum of talking on my part, and I'll follow up in a couple of days with another program and a bit more commentary from me. Right now, let's join Terrence McKenna, for the next segment of the workshop that we began listening to a few weeks back. And if I remember correctly, this conversation took place in February of
1: 1994.
2: Yeah. When it comes to um, Kurt Schwitter's Dada German Poetry and glossolalia, to you, is there an academic difference? I mean, were they going at it dryly in Europe as opposed to the... You know, well,
1: no. The I mean, Dada, pataphysics, surrealism, they were seriously into the theoretical penetration of the unconscious. And, you know, they had hashish, ether, morphine, I mean, not exactly uh, my menu, but, well, hashish, I mean, go with that, ether and morphine, you can have that. (laughs) But...
0: Well, but what they
1: did do is they thought deeply about it in a slightly different context, you know. The Surrealists, they didn't... Post-1955 or something, anybody who has a good idea thinks they also have to be uh, a a fad uh, or somehow take the stage of mass media. The Dadas and the Surrealists tried to manipulate mass opinion, but it was generally peripheral. It was a movement for and about and among intellectuals. Uh, it had later an impact on advertising, but an imagistic impact that was fairly uh, superficial. But The manifesto
2: itself, like, is almost... A 2012
1: treatise. That oh, yeah, no, the beauty writing beauty. is it's very interesting. Soul
2: make the, the At, inside the
1: manifest uh, in the outside. The yes, L'Entremont beauty. said, I am fascinated with the kind of beauty that arises when a bicycle meets a, something or other on an operating table. You know, that was modernity. The
2: thing that anybody who can't imagine a horse dancing on the head of a kid is an idiot, On a tomato. On oh, a, a tomato, tomato Horse right. dancing on a tomato. Great well, songs that, <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: you know, this is a good example of how, within certain time spans, everything has already happened. I mean, if you want to understand 2012, understand 1905, uh, when it all hit, or, you know, when the first uh, when the first precursive reflections hit, and relativity, and pataphysics, and uh, all of this stuff was... Uh, breaking out it's been possible to be very far out for a long time I mean since at least the death of Victor Hugo if you were really hip you could be on on the edge of what was happening we're the 20th century is a great gathering for a leap and the 19th century was you know the century of the gentleman. science worked darkies kept their places everything was under control the 20th century The discovery of the unconscious by uh, Freud and then Joseph Goebbels. Uh, The uh, (laughs) you know all all of these uh, all of these things happened, which were basically the discrediting of Western values, and then the looking around for the way out, and the way out is this archaic revivalism. That there are models in the distant past that show how it would work. But whether we can actually make a new world is, is not clear because the momentum of the past is very great. And I was
2: also wondering if you could say a couple of words on compressionism.
1: Well, compressionism is just uh, uh, the, the idea that as we move through history, the amount of connectivity and the um, density of technological effects and genetic mixing and everything intensifies.
2: Field intensity.
1: yeah, I mean, that if you make the measure of complexity the density of connection, then you can see that what's happening is the earth is shrinking, everybody's getting knitted together, everything is being translated into every other language, everything is being put into retrievable databases, everything is coalescing toward a point. Now, the... Assumption of cheerful reason is that this is just a kind of cultural illusion, and that it won't continue past a point where it's uncomfortable. But in fact, probably it's a kind of law of large systems: this point convergence phenomena, and uh, it probably is not going to arrive a moment too soon for us, because we seem to be sort of spilling out over the showing up in art, man. Yeah, it's like a
2: movement.
1: Compressionism.
2: Yeah, it seems like it's it's gonna be the. New it's like po- it's like
1: post beyond postmodern. It's like beyond yeah. postmodern. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Well, compressionism Ooh, is good. Smart. I hope the check is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we've been trying to start our own little version of that. You know, we've been
2: trying to. So you know, when people ask what it is, you know. Well, Well, no, see, I mean, the the
1: idea here is simply that if you look, it is something which science has overlooked completely, which is if you look at the universe, the history of the universe on any scale, you see that it is complexity which is conserved, that when novel uh, effects are achieved they tend to be built in to the system, and they tend then to become the platform for further advances into novelty. That's why, you know, biology arrives somewhat late in the history of the universe. In the last 10% of the universe, biology arrives. In the last 10% of the history of biology, uh, complex animals arrive. In the last 10% of that, Conscious self reflecting beings arrive. So, uh, this is a general law that is, uh, has never been discussed scientifically. That in fact, science claims there are distinct causal breaks between the physical and the biological for sure, and possibly between the biological and the cultural, but there's no reason. think this and the other thing to notice is that this accumulation of novelty that's going on in time is not simply uh, a a constant it is slowly accelerating so that the more novelty there is the faster novelty is produced and that's why we're caught in this kind of inwardly spiraling orbit of attraction that is taking us toward some kind of a calendrical singularity. That's why history is a self-limiting process. It just, it doesn't go on for hundreds of thousands of years a la Isaac Asimov or somebody like that. It, it just doesn't. It's a very brief process. It speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, and then pushes everything through a singularity. This, yeah. this is the timeline. It yes, this is the time the wave waves is a mathematical in these description. Ten percent moments
2: in history, you can see them on the time wave. Yeah, and there's the nothing United magical. You can see on the time there's
1: wave. nothing magical about the variables in the time wave. It's simply that they are the math- the math- fluctuations that became embedded in the early history of the universe. In the same way that the charge of the electron and you know these constants came into being during the symmetry breaks of the early universe. When you say singularity, do you mean like um, collective focus and purpose? In no, I just like use it in the sense of physics. A singularity is a place where the laws fail. And a singularity usually has point-like dimensions. Otherwise, you have too many places where the singularity reigns and the laws fail. You don't want the laws to fail. If you generate a theory, you want to have as few singularities as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the problems with black hole theory is it demands a singularity at the center of every black hole. But then when you ask, well, how many black holes are there in the universe? It turns out it's something like 10 high thirteen. Well, that's a lot of singularities. Oh, if you're, you have 10 high 13 singularities in your model of the cosmos, what kind of model is this? You know, it's a, just, model, full it's a, a model full of holes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what so, was the big bang for the
2: actual Singularity. Well,
1: the big bang, you know, last week's science news brought the news that they're now haggling over 10 billion years uh, nobody knows whether the universe is 12 billion years old or 26 billion years old.
0: But you know? <laughs> it's some, some physical mathematics having to do with Bell's theorem again. If you go back to a, a Big Bang sort of conjecture and you take a look at Bell's theorem, which says that particles that, you know, loosely interpreted, says that particles that have been in contact, contact being quantum mechanically interpreted, mm-hmm. will continue to show correlations, you know, after they have been separated... If you, if you relate all that back to a Big Bang moment where, in fact, all particles were in contact, that says that those correlations will continue to manifest in those particles that have become the physical universe. So it, so it provides a quantum mechanical explanation for the, the magical correlations that we see, you know, that we become aware of with psychedelics or, or other techniques. And, and it implies, most definitely, something that is very much at odds to the reductionist uh, constructions of, of scientific materialism in that it implies very strongly non-local correlations. Yeah, implies, well, I
1: think it's pretty clear that reductionism is at the end of the road. The question is...
0: fractal mathematics, for
1: Well, that's a kind of reductionism. Right, right. When you're talking about reductionism, I think there's an issue here that hasn't
2: been brought up and forgive me because I can't remember everything you said, but I do remember, because this does relate, but I do remember what he said. And I'm very limited in asking my question because I'm not up on science as probably many people are much better uh, qualified to talk about. But I do know something about um, symbolic consciousness. And I think that the thing that's wrong with these systems is everything you said these systems uh, uh, is limited to, including reductionism. But I think if we're talking about uh, something being banal, I think it's also... The other problem with these predictable things is they're literalistic. And if we're ta- going to talk about how to deal with these, having some, some sort of structure to deal with these highly complex phenomena, then I think that a symbology, a symbolic consciousness, can deal with what these literalistic systems, both scientifically and religiously, because then we, we have what you said, what I, when I'm saying symbolical consciousness or symbolic systems, or as Yates said, metaphors for poetry, or as even Joseph Campbell said, myth metaphor as metaphor, as myth and as religion. Don't imagine, you know, that uh, uh, literalistic religion or science is going to deal with them, because it has no imagination, then it's literalistic. Mm-hmm. So, I'd just like to hear from you what... Uh, how you see psychedelics in terms of what he called magical correspondences and what I'm calling symbolical consciousness
1: well if, if psychedelics are in fact giving a cross section of reality that is true and if in fact that's how reality works then the congruence of the two would be what you would expect to see I think I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that. But do you agree
2: that these these systems, added to what you're <coughs> saying, their limitations are, are also literalistic?
1: Well, yes. But how can there not be a literalistic system? In other words, every every um, formulation of the problem and the solution is going to betray it so they're always going to be literalistic the the uh the mystery is best served by silence and contemplation the problem is you know it's just hell on your bank account if you're a professional lecturer so we drop down a level to raving and ranting uh but all of these things are provisional and literalistic. Nowhere is it writ large that the minds of higher primates are going to hold a simulacrum of reality. Uh, but it's, as I've said you know, many times, this Wittgensteinian idea of things being true enough, provisionally true. Could, could you adopt that time wave to it's the That would help you out the then, huh? Well, no, but it would help me out of a bind by corrupting me with money, and somehow these (laughs) gifts of the logos are always self-sealed against that kind of tampering. You can only predict a stock crash when it's big enough to sweep away a few national governments, and then the stock crash turns out to be a small part of something else. No, it's amazing how incorruptible uh, uh, the real thing is, yeah. Yeah, no. That's a very that's an, that's an interesting point. Uh, fundamentalism, it, which is which bedevils our political dialogue, is a very modern phenomenon, they don't tell you this. But it is not traditionally sanctioned anywhere that you give a literalist interpretation to scripture. That ha- arose in the 1870s uh, in the back country of baboon asshole or somewhere it's uh, not became <laughs> in Well, later than that, though. It's later than that. It's a uniquely American phenomenon, Christian fundamentalism, and has no no roots and no sanction in the history of Christian theology whatsoever. It's just, as you say, idolatry. It's a a fetishism of literalism that is preposterous. It's part of an American political tradition called know-nothingism, which reaches back to the early 19th century when there was a know-nothing party, Uh, this was a respectable position I mean their attitude was our mind is made up don't confuse us with facts and they you know that once there was a party in Canada called the social credit party and they ran on the platform you don't have to understand social credit to vote for it (laughs) (laughs) and uh,
2: so what more evidence do you need you know
1: well, but you see, the the other the counterpoint of view is there have always been people raving on street corners about the approaching doom based on the fact that the rise of Frederick Barbarossa was doing X or Y, or the Emperor <laughs> Rudolf was doing something. It's very easy to overlay the end-time scenario over any complex period of history. Nevertheless, I agree with you. I think it's, it's uh, very terminal, and that... Uh, There's a lot of evidence that the reason the West is so obsessed with the consummation of itself is because the consummation of the West is actually built into our psychology, and we keep trying to do it. We tried in the Thirty Years' War, not enough technological push. Hitler tried to do it. Close, but no banana. Now, uh, you know, the next try. We have this Ragnarok, this wish for uh, an operatic conclusion it's a kind of infantilism we are so frustrated by by how it doesn't work that that we we want a deus ex machina ending that leaves everyone satisfied so you can just you know leave the theater completely ah there it was Uh, justice retribution denouement all these things It, it seems to me um a handle that you can hang all of uh, these various dilemmas and issues, personal, general, psychedelic and otherwise on, is the dichotomy between the historical mindset and uh, what I've heard my friend Ralph Abraham call eros. In other words, eros and history is a kind of dichotomy these things are like oil and water. They don't mix, they're incommensurate. Um And the, the thing about Eros is that it is uh, sacral and uh, time transcending. It doesn't take place in time, it takes place in, in this uh, phase space called ilio tempore. Um, Mersiliad talks about this it takes place paradigmatically outside of the forward flow of ordinary casuistry history is the ordinary forward flow of casuistry and so things that I've called um, habit and novelty have about them facets that allow them to be discussed in terms of historicity and uh, and eros the the notion of historicity in contrast to this timeless paradigmatic ritualistic space of eros the the distinguishing characteristic of historicity is is its finiteness and the stress on conclusion the stress on process that is not open-ended, but that comes to some kind of a close. And we have been living in a situation of history for about 5,000 years now. I mean, it's the unchallenged faith of of uh, Western civilization which has carried that banner everywhere. And now, wherever the faith in history is resisted, the cultural uh, lexemes have been redesigned to define that place as... Uh, primitive and benighted and uh, outside the mainstream. Nevertheless, this di- this descent into history has not been uh, a particularly happy voyage. It's been fraught with progressive alienation as we moved away from some kind of dynamic, nomadic, poly- sexually polymorphic... Um, relationship to each other and to the planet and to the environment and progressively into a more sedentary population dense specialized and symbolically involved style of existence and it has made possible a skewing or a um, departure from the main curve of of natural development as a species and we've gone off on a kind of random walk into the great museum of intellectual artifactria or something and there we have (coughs) adumbrated culture. Meanwhile, uh, biological change, evolutionary change in our species has pretty much halted. Everything is going on in the domain of the rewriting of cultural software. The monkey stays the same, but we trade, you know, uh, Zoroastrianism for Christianity. We trade the differential calculus for algebra. Various cultural obsessions come and go into them. Okay, so that's the characteristic of historicity and the great exhibit that reinforces this point of view is the phenomenon of physical death of the termination of the individual personality and so that is the argument ne plus ultra for uh... the existential bite of this point of view say look here here is so and so once they were a living person and now they're a corpse and doesn't this carry the day for our point of view. It's, uh, it's basically uh, a view steeped in mortality. The other view, this erotic view, is uh, on the upswing into novelty. It's hopeful. It's open-ended. It's connective. And these things um, are, are, exist in a state of dynamic tension. So that's the take on one level. But then, as I mentioned this morning, there's also this tendency toward acceleration or implosion, concentration of effect. And that then tips the scale, and you see that these two forces, which appear to be universally pitted in eternal struggle are actually not pitted in eternal struggle because one is slowly, incrementally in ascendancy over the other one and always has been. And this is uh, uh, this uh, erotic element which stands for spontaneity, boundary dissolution... Overwhelmment of social norms. I mean, it's an archetype. It operates on every level. It operates in the personality, in the society, in physics. It's the principle of of uh, creative disorder. You know, hail discordia and all that malarkey. It's the it's the thing which civilization is very tweaked about and ambivalent toward because it represents a a situation of unpredictability. It represents uh, the unexpected innocence, the unexpected, hexagram 25. So it's the X factor. There's a famous book in systems theory called Planning on Uncertainty. This is the one thing people rarely do plan on, and so then their plans are always slightly askew because uncertainty, is the one thing that is uh, is built into the system. So psychedelics then are are like um, a periscope out of the cultural submarine, mm-hmm. back to some kind of reality that is going on beyond the cultural machinery. Uh, and and apparently this is simply because the neurological programming of the brain is not so malleable as to be shaped by something as peripheral as cultural experience it just isn't it has to be chemically perturbed it's a chemical engine of some sort and the perturbation of it causes these categories which are thought to be God-sent by naive realists to actually just begin to slip and slide and flow and reveal their provisional nature. That's the thing, that it turns out all these models of reality are provisional. This is the great contribution of 20th century science, I think, to human thinking. The abandonment of the search for truth and the uh, satisfaction with what are simply called sufficient models. You know, if the model accepts the input you are aware of and gives you the output you are aware of, the model is said to be a close enough approximation to the thing that further questions would be tasteless to pursue. But everybody now understands that uh, uh, this is not truth in any scholastic sense. It's just uh, it's just modeling. But what we need, you see, and why I offer this habit, novelty, eros, history, um, complexity, disorder model, is because it's a st- it's a bipolar concept that is intuitively effective across many levels. The problem with science is that the explanatory power is enormous, but the bottom line is incomprehensible and does not come tangential to experience. What, you know, An explanation that does not come tangential to experience is some kind of con job. However mathematically elegant and anchored in tensor equations of the third degree and so forth, it means a fast shuffle has taken place. You started out with gold, and now what you have are pieces of paper with some prince's picture put on it. And, uh, you know, hmm, uh, somewhere along the line you were dealt out of the gelt in that game. Um, well, it, you know, you can talk about this in very specific terms. It's very interesting that uh, this hormone ad- called adenoroglomerotropane, which occurs in the pineal gland, actually, when analyzed, turns out to be 6-methoxy-tetrahydroharmelan. It's a beta carboline. DMT occurs naturally in the human metabolism, uh, and DMT clearly impacts consciousness both in its hallucinogenic intensity but also in the speed with which the reaction can be turned on and off. You know, it's very fast quenching. Clearly, ordinary consciousness, the process of thought, of reverie, of recall, depends on a series of very rapidly uh, expressed and degraded chemical reactions. I mean, literally, chemistry going on at the speed of thought. So uh, tryptamines play a role there. It's also interesting that as you ascend the animal phylogeny, the concentration of serotonin in brain tissue increases, and serotonin is 5-hydroxytryptamine. There is a mystery about these, uh, these tryptamine and serotonergic molecules, uh, the relationship between um, eros here, but more specifically sexuality, and the DMT flash, where, you know, these two, well, like orgasm and the DMT flash, these two physiological phenomena are very close together in a matrix of experience where there's nothing else really around them. And yet orgasm is a generalized human phenomenon. The DMT flash, extraordinarily rare. One uh, mediated well I don't know that much about orgasm in terms of the chemistry but the other clearly mediated by neurotransmitters probably both are and you know though I've read a lot about theories of human emergence and so forth nobody has satisfactorily dealt with the relationship of our sexuality to the emergence of consciousness that first of all all monkeys are fairly highly sexed but Many monkeys have an estrogen cycle, you know, and their bottoms swell up and they go through all that. We don't do that. Uh, We are uh, capable of conceiving children throughout the annual year. All of these things somehow impinge the sexuality and the consciousness and the proclivity for symbolic activity all somehow meet in... The, the psychedelic phenomenon, but, you know, we're pre-paradigm here. We can't quite put together what it all means. The paradox of the psychedelic thing on, at the sociological level, I think, is that it is uh, old, not news at all. The general way that human beings have probed the experiential other There are two kinds of other, you know. There is the philosophically other, the theoretically other, the world of uh, uh, imaginary numbers and places like that. And then there is the experientially other, which is the other as you know it. And some people don't know it at all because they lead very pedestrian lives or, or maybe they only encounter it in fevers and dreams or life transforming crises that come v- very rarely uh, but if you but it is an accessible dimension and uh, one can push and then have these uh, experiences of the other and they, they uh, then feed back into the life of the culture it's, uh, it's a paradox you see I mean, the bigger you build the bonfire of understanding, the more darkness you reveal. Because, you mm-hmm. know, just necessarily, as mm-hmm. the sphere of understanding expands, the surface area of ignorance grows yeah. ever larger. The enterprise of knowing is itself defined by the fact of, uh, of unknowing. And, uh, you know, the fact that mind is chemically based and the fact that we are beginning now to understand and take apart the mechanism of cognition is leading to the obvious conclusion that, in a sense, we can design our, ourselves. I mean, we've always done this, but by very ineffective and uh, sort of brute methods by inquisitions and hortatory religions and hanging people in the public square as a, as a cautionary example. But, you know, pharmacology holds out the possibility, and I mean pharmacology in the broadest sense, like up to and including these electronic media, holds out the possibility that we can become whatever it is that we feel gnawing at our souls trying to get out. Uh, but then the question is discovering what that actually is, you know, birthing the angelic, demonic, Faustian uh, soul of the species. We don't know exactly what we are when all natural law falls away, uh, when, uh, you know, the design process. When the law of gravity is cancelled, when the laws of budgetary constraints are cancelled, when all restraints are lifted, then what kind of thing flowers flowers out? But if the historical process isn't conscious, and by that I mean under the aegis of Eros, I associate eros to consciousness here. If the historical design process isn't conscious, then it will be phonic, it will be unconscious, as it has been, mm-hmm. and then it has the character of a nightmare. I mean, that's what the 20th century is like. It's like, uh, it's like a nightmare. It's like lurching from one chaotic, catastrophic unfolding of meaningless concatenations to the next, you know? My notion of how this worked in the past was that these psychedelics were like uh, pipelines to, the, to what I called the Gaian mind. The Gaian mind being the complete set of superimposed um, control systems that keep the planet a working, organic entity. And human beings were, were part of that and very tightly aligned, because control in bio, uh, in in echo is achieved through uh, signal transfer, and it can be chemical, or auditory, or or linguistic. And uh, for sure, the early human population was embedded in this kind of a control system, and psychedelics, I think, were probably the way that this was done. That actually, you know, it reminds me of this graffiti I saw once in Colombia. It had a picture of a mushroom on a wall, and it said, without this, you are not yourself. <laughs> uh, well, that's sort of the notion, that a person who does not take psilocybin is, sli- is dysfunctional. Uh, because it's an, it's a necessary part of the way people fit into nature. And if you don't have the, the psilocybin glue interfacing between you and nature, then there has been a breakdown in mental hygiene. And, uh, you know, the equivalent of psoriasis or something is on the way, Uh And and as soon as that connection was broken with the invention of agriculture, you see then a very sudden proliferation of neurotic behavior styles and cultural patterns which are maintained up until uh, the present day. Uh, This thing we hinted at last night about how... uh, Probably the male percentage of the population is maintained at artificially high levels and that this has been going on throughout history. Probably the natural ratio of males to females is something like 30% to 70%, perhaps even lower. But uh, agriculture and food supply, a whole bunch of things conspire to make it possible to make those numbers closer to 50-50. It's unusual in a mammalian species to have sexual parity of population like that. And the fact that the dominator cultural style is maintained by an excess of males points a certain direction toward the way things could politically re- be re-engineered in the future to correct that situation. I always think of what Graham Greene said in one of his novels. He said, I want to be on the progressive side that survives. <clears throat> That's sort of where I come down. Somebody else? Yes. You keep on saying the monkey stays the same. Now, if change... Uh, no, I agree. I'm just a show-me kind of guy. But, I mean, while we're waiting for somebody to get better at guessing cards... Uh, the entire Library of Congress has become instantaneously available at the stroke of a few keys. Where the psychic abilities are increasing is in the technological excreta of the society. Uh, As I said last night, we are just like the genitals of our machines. The, it, what the power of the hardware that we are generating around us is yet unplumbed because nobody has written software powerful enough to take advantage of what uh, the hardware can do. There's an ever-expanding horizon of unplumbed freedom until we figure out what we can actually do with these technological capacities that have been, uh, have been produced. Yes, I think that the precious uh, boundary between ourselves and our machines that a certain brand of anxious humanist is uh, uh, worried to preserve is just a bunch of malarkey. And that it's perfectly clear now that the human world means... uh, the soft tissue that runs around having affairs and migraine headaches, and it also means, you know, the hardware that sits in the basements and in the skyscrapers and in the super-cooled, air-conditioned rooms where the entire uh, unconscious of the culture is in storage. Uh, That's what this database is. It's the dreaming brain of the over-species. And, you know, the fact that we are the waking mobile organic attendants of this cyber-electric reef of information, uh, we are easily replaced and we all make our small contribution. But the thing it exists all over the world, dispersed. It sets the price of gold. It turns on the flow of petroleum. It moves natural gas futures in Jakarta. It is largely autonomous and driven by algorithmic input that is on semi-automatic uh, Uh, mode. And so, you know, we imagine that it's human civilization run by human beings. No, it's just civilization run by the mysterious forces that get you to join book clubs and take certain drugs and to watch certain things, buy certain things. Uh, it's, It's very interesting. It has a will- to its own, a complexification of its own. And I think, unless you psychedelicize yourself, we tend to be so embedded in its assumptions that we don't see it. And then when you do psychedelicize yourself, you do see it, and then the problem is to not freak out about it, about the, uh, you know, the implications. That's what I've always said about the psychedelic experience. The implications are so appalling. Because, uh, you know, what does it mean that you can, that, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean, Mr. Natural? Don't mean shit. Is that yeah. <laughs> the answer to that? Olaf Stapleton wrote a book called the science
2: fiction story, Last
1: and First Man.
2: And he has a, a, a vision in there that's very close to what you just created.
1: Well, I I would like to think, you know, that everything is knitting together. That the entire universe is an engine for producing ever more advanced states of novelty and connectedness. And that ultimately aesthetic uh, concerns are what will rule. And that, you know, a weird kind of beauty is trying to manifest itself through the process of history, through the design process. Uh, but, you know, I may be wildly optimistic, uh, but I just can't imagine that at the pinnacle of all this organization would come then man, the final act, and that it would just be complete chaos. That seems a bit much, since we are the coordination of all the processes which preceded us, isn't it then reasonable to suppose that there is a certain coordination being expressed through us? I mean, nature does proceed by sudden leaps, lurches, and transformations. Uh, Sometimes, most of the time, it's very ho-hum, but every once in a while, you know, something outlandish happens, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, it's an interesting question, because uh, the character of the psychedelic experience is so futuristic, in my experience, and I think in the experience of a lot of people. Well, that concept, futuristic, is itself fairly modern. I mean, as recently as 200 years ago, when Blake was writing, he didn't use the word future, he used the word futurity and said, you know, and in far futurity, so forth and so on. In the Middle Ages, the, it, the concept barely existed at all because it was just everybody assumed that Jesus was coming and soon, uh, you know, the historical course would be terminated. Mm. Um, it's interesting, you know, the only, like, example we have where, that maybe sheds light on this is Hieronymus Bosch. Because Hieronymus Bosch paint lived from fifteen from fourteen fifty to fifteen sixteen and painted uh, what look like hallucinogenic landscapes, and there is a curious stress on technical innovation in those landscapes. In other words, wheeled vehicles primitive artillery pieces the machinery of siege warfare which was being perfected in the lowlands at that time Uh, uh, in a sense it's a cyberpunk vision Hieronymus Bosch and so uh I don't know, I, you know, having taken ayahuasca a fair bit in the Amazon with fairly primitive people, you always wonder when you're sitting there watching insects drive spaceships and stuff if the guy sitting next to you is also seeing insects drive spaceships or if for him that is out of reach in some way. But in the tryptamine reveries, there is this highly polished metallic... You know, the things like the color of sports cars and jet airplanes and, uh, and that very high-tech, deeply surfaced uh, kind of thing. Why this is, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, yes, it may be that what it can do, it's a continuing carrot phenomenon. It always communicates to you wherever you are in human history with metaphors approximately 50 years ahead of where you're at. And by that means, it is able to clothe itself in a kind of riveting awesomeness that is guaranteed to hold your attention, because it's radiating the adumbrations of futurity throughout the course of the of the dialogue with it. And that would be freaky. That would be very, very freaky. I mean, you would be hackle raising to deal with it the sharper image catalog <laughs> see it's a, it's a weird impulse it's, it's somewhat sadomasochistic that's why it's called the sharper image you see because it's this it's, it's, again this dichotomy it's the erotic but now ergonomically styled and resold back to you as a machine obviously the ultimate product we're already seeing this the ultimate product is the self I mean, if you could find a way to deal the self, everybody would be your customer. And uh, that's what virtual reality, teledildonics, phone sex, all of these informational, erotic uh, uh, imaging industries are all about. The self is big business. It's also potentially non-polluting as a product, provided that you package it sensitively. You understand what I'm saying? yeah over here
0: uh, yeah, I, i'm not sure if it's a it's of the screen well, well yeah
1: in the sense that these are these experiences cast doubt on the whole model of reality that we're living in this is this is the thing see ideologies seem to be actually like um, structures more appropriate to large groups of people so that we could say reasonably What do the Germans believe about X? But we couldn't say of a given person, you know, what is your ideology? People don't have ideologies. People are just trying to make a buck and stay afloat, you know. So uh, we have an ideology in this country which says elves can't happen. That's the official word on elves. Now, we're all embedded in this official edict on the elf question, but nevertheless, we all have our experience. And in the same way that a single atom of gold has properties... That are different from an aggregate of millions of atoms of gold, a single individual making their way through the world has a far more anomalous set of experiences than any statistical measuring of the average experience of most people. And so then, and see, now that's an example, or that gets to what we were talking about this morning about how probability theory is screwed up. There's something wrong. With trying to model the world with the concept of averages, uh, composites, uh, because that's not what you experience. What you experience is your is a single data point called you, moving through the dynamic field of existence and undergoing bifurcations, catastrophes, transformations, but never uh, an averaging. Of any of these things never a composite of a larger set of data points so somehow this the 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 smoothness and hence the boredom that comes into reality with a concept like statistical mean uh, is in fact a hallucination or an artifact of the ideology it's not true life is far more interesting than statistics is telling you it is I mean, remember the statistic that it was easier to be blown up in a terrorist attack than for a woman over 40 to remarry or something like that? <laughs> remember that, that one? Well, but obviously, women over 40 remarry all the time, so there's something wrong with the, the, the analysis. The improbable is far more probable than probability theory would lead you to predict. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and so making room in our ideology for the surprise is, uh, is the idea. And I, I you know, have been vehemently accused by people who didn't understand me of not believing in anything. I don't believe in anything. This is not a statement of existential hopelessness for which you should light a candle for me at night. It's a strategy for not getting bogged down in some weird trip. Uh after all, what are what is the basis for believing anything? I mean, you have to understand you're a monkey on some kind in some kind of a biological situation where everything has been evolved to serve the economy of survival. This is not a philosophy course. So, uh, you know, belief is a curious reaction to the present at hand. It isn't to be believed, it's to be dealt with. And, uh, huh? Experienced and modeled, 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 but not understood. It can't be understood. It must have and you can quickly satisfy yourself that it has dimensions that you cannot model or conceive of. So that people that
2: towards the gray, I mean, they have to No,
1: I'm not anti science, uh, except that, you know, science is a wonderful tool for answering very specific limited questions. Where it goes wrong is when it becomes a metaphysic. It can't serve in in that way it's a method for isolating uh operational relationships among different things but when you try to extrapolate and say from that you know the universe is this that or the other it's too naive for one thing science takes material completely seriously uh it there's been you know linguistics is a science less than a century old and linguistics should have preceded metaphysics. Metaphysics is twenty five hundred years old. But if you don't have a theory of language, if you don't understand how meaning is conferred and what the symbolic enterprise is, then your metaphysic is gonna be just hopelessly naive and, <coughs> and silly. Is
2: your meat, is your meat? Um,
1: Well, it it depends on who's doing the talking, yes. The other can only clothe itself in your nature, you know. So if if you have a set of religious expectations of some sort and it approaches you, it will clothe itself because what it is is it's a mirrored surface that as it gets closer and closer to you, it becomes clearer and clearer to you that it's the fulfillment of all your dreams. It's the fulfillment of all your dreams because it's a mirrored surface. You are seeing your own self-reflection in it. But what you're trying to do is to get to the ding on seash of the thing, you know, the thing in itself. You're trying to break through... The reflective quality of it, to dis, you know, so that like, just take the case of a mirror. A child thinks a mirror is a window into a room where its twin exists. An adult knows that a mirror is a piece of glass with a silvered back that casts light back upon it. So, these two explanations are completely incommensurate. No part of the first is preserved in the latter, and uh, if you are naive about the structure of the unconscious then when it approaches you you will adore it because it is able to take upon itself the raiment of its radiance you know i mean it's an archetype it it crackles with existential vitality and intensity that's why i think the dmt creatures say do not abandon yourself to wonder do not give way to awe You know, try and hold back, you know, enough with the genuflection already. Now pay attention Uh, because uh, it wants to be understood to some degree on its own terms. I mean, I've had the experience on mushrooms of, of meeting it in a certain guise and then saying to it, show me what you are for yourself. You know, and it's just like the whole tone of the experience changes, and the temperature falls, and the black curtains begin to rise, and there's this organ tone, and after about 30 seconds of that, you just say that. Thank you is enough about what you are for yourself. Let's go back to the dancing mice and uh, you know what I was thinking about Mayan kingship and so forth. You know the cheerful intellectual furniture of my own private Idaho, but uh, no more the the uh, no more the abyss of what you are for yourself because and so then you realize you know it is truly alien. it it will let you see as much of it as you can stand. I have a friend who that's what he says about his mushroom trips. He says each time I try to stand more (laughs) you know, because it's there seems to be no limit. There seems to be as much as you and you know, and some people look over into that abyss and pull back and just say, Okay, now I know, now I want to knit and and you know, work with the poor and uh, <laughs> do good works, and hope that I never ever see that again. Uh, <clears throat> you mean going through that weird? No, I mean I tend to I tend to think that's it. You know that that is the the message. That the message is that the mind is poised on, on a precipice of incomprehension and that there are, you know, as Shakespeare said, more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Uh, that the, the, the enterprise of understanding is dizzying. I mean, it's an ecstasy In itself that's why to me what the essence of being psychedelic is is a flirtation with detail and multiplicity I mean that's why I'm so fascinated by history because it's such a complex object I like complex stuff Uh, history art history philosophy languages magic all of these things I like the well-wrought and complex, the pattern turned in upon itself, the place where mind has moved across the sand and left a tracing. And uh, in all of that, then, there is some kind of uh, satisfaction, you know, in ruins, in old books, in forgotten places, in the places where people haven't been poking around so long. I mean, the river of cognition is broad and deep, and many people are, you know, worrying about, uh, I don't know, The Simpsons or something like that. But uh, over at the fractal edges of the great river, the, the uh, peculiar, the bizarre, the little dealt with is uh, flourishing. Yeah. Did you talk a little bit about uh, ego death uh, on psychedelic trips and if it's related at all to that area of weirdness that people look at when they say, you know, show me the experience for itself? Well, I I think the issue for uh, male personalities, dominator personalities, strong egos, so forth, with psychedelics is the issue of surrender, that you really do submit the all the, the you know the beef that goes on with these other schools of spiritual uh, uh, aspiration that psychedelics are too easy or that they you know it's not done incrementally year after year following the strict teachings of the guru well the real thing is an act of self abandonment an act of giving yourself over to the greater force of the universe. And this is very hard to do, and it doesn't get easier, I think. The more you do it, it maybe it it gets harder. But I think that that's the way you advance, that you you cannot advance by direct frontal assault on the mystery. And all occult schools uh, suffer from this belief that it's an act of cognitive... Uh, assimilation. It isn't. It's an act of boundary dissolution that you achieve by doing something radical. And that something radical is getting loaded, you know. That will turn the trick in most cases. It's not the only one. I think it is. I think that all these other things are hocus-pocus and mumbo-jumbo. I mean, I did say last night, you know, that I'm interested in this particular family of Indole hallucinogens. But I, I think, you know, no method, no guru, no teacher. It, that nobody has a handle on this, nobody understands. All these esoteric schools are the double dealing of beady-eyed priests.
2: Yeah,
0: maybe
1: most. I think all. I mean, I just figure, you know, if it walks like a duck, if it talks like a duck, it probably is a duck. Uh, And if there is somebody who actually has superior knowledge who's holding it back, then they really have something to answer for because, you know, the world is going nuts for the uh, uh, absence of real doorways. But I I think that uh, if somebody breaks through, you'll know about it and that all of these theories are simply encumbrances to direct experience. And, and direct experience comes through sexuality built into the biological and social nature of things, and the psychedelic experience not built into the biological and social nature of things at the moment, but in the past it was, and we were much happier, and in the future it must be, or we probably aren't. Uh, going to survive
0: modern culture suppresses sexuality as well oh yeah no
1: modern culture is very anxious about any activity that uh, dissolves boundaries sex is suppressed you know I mean we come out we meaning we the inheritors of European civilization out of a tradition that within a hundred years ago women were and men I suppose were encouraged to dress in the dark so that their own bodies would not be occasions for uh, sins of uh, thought. Well, this is the screwiest stuff ever to come down the pike. I mean, this is weirder than wearing powdered wigs or having mass human sacrifice or any of the rest of it. And we're, the, you know, the great-great-grandchildren of those people build hydrogen bombs. So uh, it, it's, it's quite bizarre. Sexuality... Uh, is the one place where they have not really, though they've been able to distort it and manipulate it, they haven't been able to get rid of it or take it away. I mean, they've tried to force it into matrimony, tried to uh, limit it to its biological function, tried to make it a thing of shame and horror, but, you know, at least it survives. uh.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, I realize that I don't need to point this out to you, but didn't you find it uh, quite interesting that back in 1994, Terence McKenna was already calling into question the then-current black hole theory? And if you've been paying attention to the news in the world of physics lately, you already know that uh, Stephen Hawking himself has recently said much the same thing as we just heard Terence say. Of course, that's my uh, layman's take on it, and uh, perhaps one of our fellow Saloners, who is also a physicist, will post an explanatory comment about this in the program notes for today's podcast, and uh, let us know that uh, most likely I've probably misunderstood what uh, Hawkins was saying. Well, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm going to uh, save my voice for the next podcast, However, I do want to be sure that you know about the Wild Wild West Festival that will take place in Arizona at the end of April. And at that festival, I will be hosting the very first live sessions of the salon. And uh, I'll put a link to it in the program notes for this podcast, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.